Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When some of our largest banks were failing and in crisis, our government was able to be creative and respond. When it came time for a family that was in an emergency, that didn't have anywhere to go, the government took years and years. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. You may have heard that Democrats won. They won the House in the 2018 election. Big news. If you haven't heard it, it's big change in American politics. A lot of things are going to be different. Something I've wanted to do on the show is actually talk to some of those Democrats who won, try to get a sense of every new class of, particularly in a majority, every new class of incoming members of Congress, they, they change the party. They change what it stands for. They change the way it does politics. They've been out there more recently talking to the public, like riding a new wave. Parties are transformed by successive generations of their congressional leadership. And so I wanted to talk to a couple of the really interesting folks who won among the Democrats in 2018. And the person I wanted to start with was Congresswoman-elect Katie Porter. I wanted to start with Porter for one thing because she won my home district, the district I grew up in in Irvine, California. Orange County went shockingly completely blue this year in congressional elections, which given our history as a place, Orange County is a cradle of conservatism in California. It's where you get Richard Nixon. Um, it was central to Ronald Reagan's rise. There's a whole book, Suburban Warriors, about conservatism in Orange County. The fact that Orange County went blue was very, very surprising. But Porter is a particularly interesting candidate. She is a law professor. She was at UCI. She's a protege of Elizabeth Warren. She's done remarkable work on bankruptcy law and foreclosures and how big financial firms actually use their power to rig the game of capitalism. She's incredibly eloquent and articulate and interesting in talking about these subjects. And like Warren herself, and we get into this, she's somebody who believes in capitalism enough to actually understand it as a system that needs to be constructed well. Like she believes in capitalism enough to want to do capitalism well, and that makes her a much fiercer and more effective critic of it than you usually hear. So sometimes you can talk to politicians and they don't say much that is of interest. They're politicians, they're not academics or thinkers, but Porter is a very fascinating academic, and this was a conversation I enjoyed tremendously. My email, as always, is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. You can email me with guest ideas, feedback, whatever it may be. But here is Congresswoman-elect Katie Porter. 
Congresswoman-elect. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So first, that was a very close and long election. I'm curious about what it felt like waiting for those votes to get counted after, to a lot of people, it felt like the election was already over. I know it was really hard on so many of our supporters um, and certainly on the news media to kind of wait that period. But for me, it, it really felt good. Um, I cleaned my house, cleaned my garage, cleaned my closet. <laughs> if you can clean it, I did it during that interim period. But I think the reason I felt so relaxed was I knew that we had worked really hard to engage people at the doors and by phones. And we have a fabulous voting system here in California. Um, and we have a fabulous registrar of voters here in Orange County. And I trust them. I trust those professionals. And so it was just a matter of giving them the time to count what was nearly record turnout in this election. I do want to thank you for recognizing um, the pain the media went through while we were waiting for the votes to to be counted, because that was hard on us. (laughs) I'm sure it was. And, you know, I got a lot of notes that were um, kind of like, I'm sorry, your dog died, sympathy notes. And then I got people who kind of wrote back abashedly saying, never mind, congrats, so proud of you. Breaking Um, dog. Alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So people just didn't know what to expect. And I think, you know, as we talk about how to create more participation in our democracy and to create more confidence in our voting system, I think California's system is going to emerge as a model. And so I think we're going to see, hopefully down the road, more, a little bit longer wait, but a little bit more confidence and a little bit in the result and a little bit more transparency about how we got to that result. And I think that's really what my election should have offered to people. This is a little bit off of where, where I'd intend to go here at the beginning, but the thing that you're, you're saying, what it strikes up me is I'm worried we're going to go in another direction. I'm worried we're going to develop in this country a bifurcated voting system where in states that lean blue, you have voting systems that are trying to help people register, trying to help them vote, trying to make sure your vote is counted, trying to make it easier to vote with long early voting periods and easy vote by mail and all these other things where the idea is like, let's have more turnout. And that in a lot of red states, it is going in the opposite direction where barriers are being erected and they're trying to cut in Wisconsin. I believe they just cut the amount of early voting time. It seems to me that one of the two political parties, Republicans, have begun to believe, maybe correctly, that a more small-D Democratic country is a more big-D Democratic country. And so they're trying to lock down their voting systems a bit. And if we end up as a country where it's like it's easy to vote in some states and, and restricted to vote in others, I mean, it won't be the first time, but it's not a good place to be. Well, I think your reference to kind of it won't be the first time is an interesting one um, because really what we're seeing is some types of voter suppression that the federal government and states had and, and civil rights groups and had sort of taken aim at and that we've seen a resurgence of some of those suppression tactics. And I think this is one of the many reasons why um, I signed on during the campaign and was one of the first kind of half dozen people who helped put together this proposed H.R. 1 bill and it, you know, it has three prongs, um, anti-corruption, campaign finance, but voting protection. And so there's a lot of focus amongst my colleagues and amongst those of us who are newly elected in recognizing that there needs to be a kind of federal floor for the minimum kind of voter protections that you need to have in order to have fair federal elections. 
Let's talk, actually, since you brought it up for a minute about H.R. 1. So I spoke with Congressman um, Sarbanes the other day, who's, you know, one of the, uh, of course, as you know, one of the lead authors of it. I think it's really notable that Democrats are prioritizing as their first bill, a bill that is about voting process and integrity and anti-corruption. Usually what's prioritized is a bill that is more about bread and butter, economic kitchen table issues. And it, it seems that Democrats are beginning to see um, progress on the latter as being dependent first on progress on the former. Absolutely. And, you know, Congressman Sarbanes came and visited the district with me and talked with people about his long experience in fighting for campaign finance reform and like little d democratic reform of our, our processes. And, you know, the... I think it's pretty clear the Democrats had a very, very good year in this election in terms of the House seats. And so we're interested. We clearly can win under the existing system. What this is about is not about winning and losing. It's about delivering on the kind of pleas that we heard on the campaign trail from people who are very concerned about the integrity of our elections. They're very concerned about gerrymandering. They're very concerned about making sure their vote is counted. And so I think what you're seeing from the freshman class and from the Democratic leadership is a real sense that we have to establish confidence in our democracy if we're then going to be able to have credibility when we try to have conversations about substantive issues. And then, of course, on the the campaign finance side, let's be clear. I mean, when I learned that our Congress had passed a bill that Medicare could not negotiate pharmaceutical prices, I was shocked. And many, many people on the campaign trail asked me, why would that ever be a good idea? Why would we ever promise to just pay whatever price? a private company wanted to charge us as the government. And of course, the answer is there is no justifiable policy reason for that. Um, it has to do with the influence of, of big pharma on our Congress. And so we're not going to be able to tackle some of those issues like health care pharmaceutical prices, consumer protection, environmental um, protections until we have a system that people are voting their values and and not just voting what a lobbyist told them to do. So I want to do a a hard rewind here. Um, Tell me, you grew up in Iowa, yeah? I did. I grew up on a farm in Iowa in the 1980s. And um, I grew up, I was a nine-year 4-H'er. I showed pigs and cows and you know, baked cookies and did all of that stuff. Um, And it was during the farm crisis in the 1980s when I watched so many of our neighbors lose their farm. Uh, My dad had to stop farming and and take a job in town. Uh, My mom commuted 60 miles each way um, to put food on the table. And I watched the small town bank in my community closed down. The FDIC literally came in at five o'clock on a Friday night with black cars, um, just like you hear about in the movies, and locked the doors of the bank. And we spent a long weekend wondering if that bank was going to reopen and wonder what that would mean for our town. And you said you you grew up on a farm. Were your parents full-time farmers? Yes, they were. My dad and my grandfather um, both farmed. They farmed together. It was a small family operation. Sometimes they had one hired hand, but it was it was really mostly just the two of them. I have a lot of great memories of getting off that school bus. It was a hour-long ride um, home from the school. And when I would get home, the first thing I would do would be go out um, in our backyard, which was actually 160 acres, and go look for my grandfather and spend time with him riding around, fixing machinery, fixing fence, 
taking care of animals, um, all of those kinds of things. I ask that because so, so your family is dependent on the farm income. I think a lot of people don't know what the farm crisis was of that era. Can you can you talk a little bit about that context? Yeah. So, you know, I think part of what with the farm crisis was it was an incredibly powerful part of my childhood. Um, it's not really any wonder that I went on to study bankruptcy um, growing up as a kid watching families go bankrupt. But I think because it was regional in nature and largely affected the kind of upper Midwest area, a lot of the rest of the country, frankly, didn't experience it and didn't see it. And so the the best way I can kind of describe it is I remember very distinctly when the financial crisis of 08 and 09 was happening and, you know, Lehman filed bankruptcy and the markets were kind of frozen and people were scared. I remember someone saying to me, well, you know, will we be all right and I remember being able to say yes, because I'd gone through this once before with my family. I said, you'll be all right, but we we may not achieve some of the things we wanted to. Like, we may not be able to retire at the age we expected, and we may have to do different jobs than we wanted to do, and we may get a salary cut, and some of our hopes and dreams are going to evaporate because of this financial crisis. And that's what I saw on the farm for so many families, that way of life really changed permanently. And frankly, that's what I saw here on the ground in California when I was doing foreclosure prevention work. Did the farm crisis change your family's life permanently? It did. My dad never returned to farming. It was his life's love. I think he still misses it. I think in his retirement, um, he secretly works as a hired hand during crop season, running a combine and doing things like that, mowing hay um, now that he's retired. But we were never able to afford to go back to it. We, thank God, didn't lose our farm to bankruptcy. We lost it, as so many people do, very slowly over time. We just couldn't afford to rent that land and didn't buy a new piece of equipment when that old one broke. Um, we patched it up, and, and when it couldn't be patched up anymore, we didn't harvest you know, that. We sold off our cattle slowly but surely. And when my grandfather passed away, it was about eight years after the worst of the foreclosure crisis, and that was really kind of the end of that way of life. And my grandmother still lives in Iowa. She owns um, a little bit of the land. She rents it out that we own. But for the rest of us, that that just isn't coming back. Tell me a bit about your path then to studying bankruptcy law at Harvard, because that's a that, that's an unusual that's a, that's an unusual career trajectory for anybody to take. Yeah. So I was to tell you the truth, Harvard gives curricular guidance and they at the time they they strongly recommended that law students take three courses as upperclassmen. They take a course in corporations, that they take a course in constitutional law, and that they take a course in tax. And um, I like to be taught by really good teachers. And they bundle these teachers together. And so you get kind of one star professor and one kind of good professor and one maybe needs improvement professor. Wait, really? And Yeah, really. And so it's, it's like somebody knows that they're the needs improvement professor in the No, bundle? I know. It's so brutal, but they do know it. And they'll, <laughs> they'll sometimes say it on the first day of class, right? Oof. And so my bundle was I had Elena Kagan for constitutional law. Heard of her. Um, which was pretty amazing. I had a kind of nerdy but very thoughtful guy for 
corporate law, and I got someone for tax who was rumored to not be good. Now, as a professor, I now look a little bit more askance at these rumors, and I realized the person who might not have been good might have actually been excellent but demanding. So I, I thought, well, I don't want, you know, there was a one really famous tax professor at the time, and I wanted that person. And so I got on the wait list, and I waited and waited and waited, and I didn't get the class. And so I decided, well, I'm not going to take tax law. But I felt guilty. Because I'm a rule follower. I try to read and do what I'm supposed to do. And so I read the justification for why Harvard Law thought it was a good idea to take tax. And the primary justification was that it was really important that someone take a course in a complex um, code of statutes and that they take a course that helped them see how government policy could be effectuated through statutory law. And I read the description of the bankruptcy course, and I decided that would do just as well. And at that time, at the exact same time I was making this decision, Elizabeth Warren was featured, I believe it was in Time magazine, in an article about her efforts to stop the bankruptcy reform um, law, which would have cracked down and made it so much harder for families to file bankruptcy. And I remember her saying, this bill is death by a thousand paper cuts to families, just a little more paper here and a few more forms here, and pretty soon you have families unable to get help. And so I signed up and took her class, and I'll never forget the first day. Tell me about the first day. That's such a cliffhanger um, to end on. <laughs> I know. So I want to make sure people stay on the, you know, keep listening sure, to the yeah. podcast. Um, we'll, we'll be right back so, after this break now. <laughs> yeah. No, so um, I walked in um, the first day and I sat in the front row. A couple of my friends had taken Professor Warren for some other classes. And I remember so clearly, and I actually have my lecture notes from that first day, but I remember her saying that capitalism is so good at incentivizing risk-taking. It's such a powerful system of reward for those who succeed. And this is, makes it one of the you know most enduring and successful economic systems ever invented. And it creates you know, prosperity that we've never seen before. But she said, you know, there's nothing inherent in capitalism that tells you what you're going to do with the people who take those risks and don't succeed, right? The, someone who starts the small business and they have a good idea, they end up a millionaire. The person who starts a small business and has a bad idea or a competing business moves in right next door at the same time or something goes wrong, Nothing about our capitalist system inherently tells us what to do about the losers or those who have fallen down on their luck, um, about the people who get sick or get laid off as industries change and grow. And she said bankruptcy is the the flip side of capitalism. If you want to incentivize risk-taking, you have to have a cushion there and a system to rehabilitate people and to preserve the value and to put it back to work in the economy. And you know, so much of what I, I heard when she was giving that lecture was a story about what my family had tried to do, you know, losing the farm and my mom entering the workforce and, and trying to, you know, put two, put my mom and dad both into the workforce and earning less, but with two incomes able to string it together. And, and eventually my mom, by the way, became a very successful quilting entrepreneur, believe it or not. Um, she's like one of the nation's most famous quilters. Huh. Um, she had a public TV show and all these things, but she never would have, to use the economist lingo, she never would have deployed her human capital that way if there hadn't been that opportunity for our family to kind of pick up and start over. And so I was fascinated by this. She's an Elizabeth Warren is an amazing teacher, truly an amazing teacher. And I just 
I loved it from that very day. And I remember thinking to myself that day, um, I found the thing that I want to study and work on for the rest of my life. And it's it's so true. I'm, I'm going to Congress in so many ways to think about how to create economic stability and prosperity for families. This is something on a theoretical level I think is really interesting as a kind of quiet divide in the Democratic Party right now. Um, you know, you can kind of, it's sort of like the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders divide. There's people who are critics of capitalism and then the people who are theorists of capitalism. And something that's always been fascinating to me about Warren, and I think about a lot of your work, is that there's a very clear idea that capitalism is a powerful but somewhat vague set of ideas that has to be constructed into a system. And the decisions made in those in that construction are very important and can be made a lot of different ways within the context of capitalism. And people keep trying to justify the status quo as capitalism. But like the range of what capitalism can be is quite vast. Absolutely. And there seems to be a real sense of it as a system there. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, we I'll give you a great example of how I think about this. The premise of capitalism, of course, is market competition. And so when economists you know, prognosticate and and do this work and talk about why capitalism is so great, they make a whole series of assumptions. And one of the assumptions they make, of course, is that people have access to correct information and so therefore can exercise their market power on the basis of that correct information. They make an assumption that there is free competition between businesses. And so when we think about things like consumer deception in the marketplace, or we think about the lack of enforcement of our nation's antitrust laws, to me, those are distortions in the capitalist system. And so if we want to see our capitalist system thrive and deliver prosperity for all and maximize the kind of benefits of of capitalism, we have to make sure that we're at the policy level, putting some of those rules of the road in place so that the capitalism can really drive forward um, safely. Do you think people are losing faith in capitalism? Yes, I do. I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, I think things like not enforcing antitrust laws. Um, we've seen a couple administrations, several administrations kind of look the other way on some antitrust issues. I think the level of consumer, I mean, I just saw it personally firsthand in the foreclosure crisis. People who thought that they had to buy a house in order to achieve the American dream, and they were told by a bank that they could afford this house. Somebody was willing to make the loan to them, and a year later, they were told, you could never afford this house. How could you make such a bad decision? You need to move out. Hand me your keys. You know, those kinds of moments cause people to, those stumbles, the falls, I should really, it wasn't a stumble, it was more like a face plant during the recession of 2008, 2010. Those moments really do shape public's belief in capitalism. And of course, they also shape the public's belief in government as kind of the caretaker of capitalism. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. One of the things I hear from people who have lost a lot of faith in capitalism is that maybe the naive model is a way to put it. The naive model of capitalism says that what it is is a fair competition. And they look around and they see an unfair competition where powerful players like banks seem to play by different rules um, than individuals, seem to get away with a lot more than individuals. And if capitalism can't be fair, if the if the market competition, if the negotiations, if the information can't be fairly distributed, then the system doesn't work. Then it's a, you know, to use Bernie Sanders' language, then it's a rigged game. And it does seem to me that a lot of your work has uncovered ways in which the system actually isn't fair, ways in which the people we often think of as capitalists are actually undermining it from within. No, I think that's that's absolutely right. Look, but I think that's not a critique of capitalism as a theory. I think that's a critique of the way that we've allowed capitalism and some of its core principles to be distorted by those who manipulate the democratic process for their benefit, right? So, you know, there's nothing about a system of capitalism that should be predicated on large corporations being able to buy influence to um, eliminate competition. That's a distortion of capitalism that our political system is allowing to occur. And so I, I think where I come from is I see the way that capitalism has created prosperity in this country, and it really is unparalleled in the modern world. But if we don't put some checks on capitalism to allow it to function, to be fair for people, then people will lose faith in it. And I, you know, I think a healthcare is a great example of this. I've spent over five hours trying to look at the healthcare insurance plans that are offered to me through the Affordable Care Act DC marketplace. Um, I have a law degree. I specialize in consumer protection. I'm a member of Congress and I can't figure out what I would have to pay if my daughter needs braces. And I've spent five hours trying. So when you have people who can't get information and they feel like everything is just hidden and buried in the fine print or not even put in print and they're going to pay good money and they have no idea if they're going to actually get that health care coverage they paid for, then that causes people to lose confidence in healthcare providers. And I think it's on those companies to change their behavior and to regain that consumer confidence. And it's on the government to push them in that direction. One of my favorite ideas Warren um, ever pushed, um, this is before she was an elected official, was she had this argument for plain vanilla financial products. 
And the argument basically, as I remember it, was she began to theorize that complexity was a way of rigging the game, that the more complex products got, I mean, for everything from the terms and conditions on your on your iTunes, you know, account all the way up, much more importantly, to home loans and auto loans and things like that. As these products got more and more complex, it became a way for one side to exert power over the other side. Like there wasn't enough, the, the other side didn't have the ability to have the information. And, you know, the, the lender could go and say, hey, look, it was all there. I gave you 67 pages of, you know, 10 point type, single single space legalese. Um, and if you didn't understand what you were signing away, that's on you. And so then, you know, you'd go to court and it would all be, it, it would all be fine and you'd be screwed. But this idea that complexity in the system is a place where unfairness can hide and is a place where power balances can hide and that it might be government's job to simplify the information around important transactions. That always struck me as a pretty interesting insight. No, I mean, I've seen that firsthand with the work that I did, not only in people's mortgages that kind of exploded and, and caused them to be at risk of losing their home. But to be frank, Ezra, I saw it on the other side when the government tried to deliver mortgage help to people. So the Making Homes Affordable and the HAMP program and the HARP program, and should I go on with acronyms? Please, um, all the acronyms. Uh, yeah. And, and so when I was on the ground here in California trying to help families navigate and get help through the National Mortgage Settlement, one of the first things that kind of caused me to lose my mind was the fact that the National Mortgage Settlement itself was 300 pages. And I remember one of the, the kindly lawyers um, for Bank of America showed up at our first meeting and he had taken the National Mortgage Settlement and had it actually bound as a book. And it was about the size of a Bible, um, like a long Bible, okay, a Bible with like annotations. And I thought consumers are supposed to read this mortgage Bible in order to understand if they can get help keeping their homes or not. This is nuts. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things I think that we've seen, and I remember saying kind of as I was getting frustrated last night looking for my health plan to, to go back to that, I remember thinking to myself, you know what, Katie, these are all gold level plans. Like that's where I was looking at the, you know, they're like platinum, gold, silver, bronze plans. And I remember being like, these are all gold plans. The, the government's taken some of the complexity out of this. If you have a gold plan, you're probably going to have pretty good health insurance. You can you can kind of relax and you can you don't have to dig into every single detail quite so obsessively. Um, but so that you know, I think the government, when it rolls out programs, also has just like corporations um, has to be aware that complexity can be a real enemy of people being able to access. Um, relief and to understand what's happening in government. Every time we say this bill is 1,400 pages or 6,000 pages, um, I think the American public thinks a little less of its Congress. And so I think making sure that we're trying to battle that complexity and recognize it's not just a harmless byproduct. It's actually a real deterrent to civic engagement, and it's a real deterrent to um, good decision-making by American voters and American consumers. Although, you know, one thing it brings up in me is I have a real frustration with the this bill is X number of pages, in part because short bills on complex topics, what they often do is say, 
and the authorities shall thereby be designated to the secretary of blah, blah, blah. And so then it's like it, the bill looks shorter, but actually everything has gone to an administrative process and there's like 1,400 pages of regulations coming out. And it strikes me as interesting that we don't have more kinds of information available. It's often the case when you're covering legislation that an office will bring out the bill, which is written in legalese and has to be, right? It has to specify things that most people don't need to know about. But they will often often bring out a section by section summary. And that'll be much shorter and it'll be written in English and it'll be a much easier way to understand what the legislation is is actually doing. And I kind of hate the weaponization of things being long because sometimes things have to be long. I wish they didn't, but but sometimes they do. But that doesn't mean there shouldn't be other products in the in the market too that have to actually conform to what the thing to what the thing really means and says. You know, there was never a good place for uh, just like somebody in the country to go and learn about the Affordable Care Act, right? Like the government really never explained what that was in one place that you could actually read and that was well done. Yeah, no, there, I mean, there's definitely, a you know, some things have to be complex, um, but it's also true that, you know, the banks would say, look, all this complexity in these mortgage products allow us to offer all of these features that ultimately make this a, a better product. And and so it's true that offer that, you know, all of the twists and turns in a bill allow us to tackle more of the problem. But I do think there's always a balance there between how much you kind of bite off at one chunk and also how you explain it to people and how you translate it to people. So, you know, we've seen the government pre-President Trump spend three or four years really working on improving mortgage disclosures. And they did lots of cognitive research where they they put these mortgage disclosures in front of people. And they actually did kind of heat mapping of how long people's eyes stayed on the disclosure and what parts they read and what parts they skimmed over. And they asked them questions after they looked at these disclosures people at different levels of education, first-time homebuyers, um, seniors, and tried to come up with a disclosure form that based on how people actually engage with information would be effective, despite the complexity of the mortgage. And so I think there's some lessons there for how we explain what we're trying to do in Washington to everyday people. I want to go through some of your research more specifically. When we sat down low those many, I mean, God, it feels like 10 years ago now, but when we sat down at the at the UCI Marketplace early in your campaign and we were talking, you gave me this great example around why we have to fax in so many documents, like why that is done. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, this is one of my pet peeves in life. I saw this with the mortgage work. Um, and I, I see this right now with, for instance, my health. It's the end of the year. A lot of us are getting notifications about our flexible spending accounts for health care or dependent care. And um, the only way to turn those in, um, in my case, for instance, is by fax or, and then they have this big disclaimer, if you really insist and will receive a delay in processing and are willing to risk it being lost, you can mail it in. And here's the thing. I don't have a fax machine. And neither do, I don't know, such an enormous sum of Americans, including lower income Americans, Americans working in factory jobs, in um, retail jobs, people working in shift work. And so by saying you have to fax it in, you're creating a roadblock to people actually taking advantage of the very benefit that they paid for. That's their money in their flexible spending account. And we know that every year a lot of that money doesn't get claimed. And the faxing is just a tool to deter people from actually getting what they paid for. And 
so to me, it's just a form of kind of very, very low grade, almost kind of benefit theft. Um, and I saw the same thing with the banks. They would say to these families who were low income, losing their home, uh, really struggling to keep ends meet, working three jobs, trying to keep food on the table. And they would say, you know, you have to go to Kinko's and you have to FedEx that. And the family would try to explain that, you know, they live in rural, a rural part of California and they don't, they don't know where to go to fax something. And the bank would be like, well, you know, that, you know, faxing is the best way to receive it. And so I, I think that's part of a kind of systematic effort to deter people from engaging. Let's talk about a more large-scale uh, space of misbehavior. You wrote a paper in 07 called Misbehavior and Mistakes in Bankruptcy Mortgage Claims, which has always struck me as a very radicalizing document. Can you talk a bit about what you found there? Yeah, no, you're definitely right. It was radicalizing in the sense that I remember the first time I presented the paper, exactly kind of how that went down. But the the thrust of the paper was there was so much debate in the years like 2004, 2003, 2005, when I was first a young lawyer and a young researcher about who these families were who who needed to file bankruptcy. And did these families really need relief? And were they cheating the bankruptcy system? And there was a really robust debate about that between the Republicans and the Democrats and among kind of consumer advocates and, you know, large banks on one hand. And I sort of got really interested in, well, who are the creditors in bankruptcy? Why is all we ever study the debtor and we question kind of the debtor's willingness to follow the law. What do, what do creditors do? And so I set out to study mortgage companies and how they behaved in cases where there was a home at risk of being lost to foreclosure as a result of the bankruptcy. And what I found was that about 40% of the time, the banks broke the law. And they were in federal court. These debtors nearly all had attorneys that they were paying thousands of dollars to. There was a federal judge overseeing this case. There was a bankruptcy trustee who's supposed to be kind of a guardian watchdog of the process. And yet these banks just broke the law and got away with it most of the time. So I wrote that paper. Uh, this when, behavior when you say broke the law, bank. what do you mean? Yeah, the law was – this was actually a great example of a very clear law. The law was actually one sentence long. It said, if you want to be paid on a mortgage in bankruptcy, you need to attach a copy of the mortgage note – a copy of the mortgage itself, and an itemization breakdown of the fees and costs that you're looking for besides the, the kind of principal amount of the debt. You have to attach these three things in order to have a valid claim in the bankruptcy case. And what we did was look and see, did people attach these three documents? And they just didn't. Like, you'd, you'd click on the claim, and there would be the claim form, and I, I'd go to scroll down to see the note and see the mortgage, and there would just be nothing there. And I guess one one could ask, like, does that matter, right? The, the, Absolutely, the people had it entered matters. into that mortgage. Like, are we? Just, is this just like? you know, using formalism to suggest that they were breaking the law. No, it absolutely matters. I mean, the note contains the terms of the debt. And so whether certain kinds of fees could be added was dictated by the terms. When the interest rate could change, those documents, we've long required a certain level of formality in our mortgage documents because taking someone's land, taking someone's home is 
a really significant act. And so when you buy a house, there's more paperwork um, than when you buy a car. There's more paperwork when you buy a car than when you buy a candy bar. And that's intentional. And, you know, I saw lots of families where the family could produce statements from the bank showing they owed X dollars. And the bank was asserting a number that was ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars more, and no explanation for that disparity. Or the bank had sent two letters within the same week with two very different figures in it. And so these are families in bankruptcy who are trying to hold on to their homes. And to do that, they have to catch up on their missed payments. And if that missed payment amount totals ten thousand dollars versus $2,000. I don't know about you, Bezra, but that's a really big difference to me in whether I think I could catch up. And what were the debtor attorneys doing? Well, the debtor attorneys at the time, I think, weren't paying attention to this. And I think it reflects the kind of larger culture at the time. When I first wrote my paper, I took it to one of my senior colleagues at Iowa, somebody who has passed away since, but he was world-renowned for his famous work on exposing racial bias and the death penalty. So this is somebody who had really blown the whistle and exposed something that was really hard for us as a society to look at. And he was an empirical scholar. I mean, he he really looked at what happened in, in death penalty sentencing. And I asked him to read my paper. And I remember him telling me that, you know, you can't say these banks are engaged in misbehavior. Like, it could all just be accidental. And I remember you know, kind of pushing back as a young scholar and saying, well, you know, it's like half the time and they're off sometimes by thousands of dollars and they have a duty to follow the law. And if they're not following at this level, it it seems like this is not a one-off by some employee who, you know, had too much Mountain Dew and added an extra zero. It it seems like this is a just an intentional disregard for the law. And and so I went ahead and I I kind of stuck to my guns and I published the paper and called it Misbehavior and Mistake in Mortgage Claims. And I presented the paper for the first time in in a hotel ballroom at a continuing legal education, which for people who are lawyers is also known as reading the paper so that people in the room are kind of reading the paper and I'm up on stage and I'm I'm really earnest and I'm young and I have you know I have charts and I have facts and I have data and I have graphs and I'm building this case establishing that the banks break the law and they do it over and over and over again and they they do it in North Carolina and they do it in Nevada and they do it to the tune of $10,000 and they do it to the tune of $100,000 and I get all done and I say you know are there any questions and the room is quiet. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm good at waiting as a professor because students sometimes take some time to think. And a gentleman way at the back uh, wearing a, a, you know, what looked to be a, a suit that cost more than my mortgage at the time raised his hand. And I, I, I was excited. And I said, yes, sir. And he he said to me in that same voice that my school principal always used when he said I talk too much, he said, Young lady, Wells Fargo does not make mistakes. And I, I remember just being dumbfounded at the kind of ability of, of his to overlook what I had just presented, which were clearly, at the minimum, they were mistakes. And as I thought about that statement over the years, I've realized maybe there was a hidden truth there. Uh-huh. Wells Fargo doesn't make mistakes. Wells Fargo intentionally rips people off. 
Yeah, I did. as soon as you said that, I thought, oh, that's really damning. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I didn't mean it that way, but to the, the story you were just telling, like, okay, so it is misbehavior. Right. But at the time, I mean, I think it really reflects to your question about kind of what were the judges doing mm-hmm. and what were the debtors' attorneys doing. I mean, there was this perception that consumers make mistakes, big companies get it right. right. You know, and I remember someone telling me, um, it was a kind of recovered banker. And I remember him telling me that, you know, the first rule of banking is the consumer pays all the fees. And I remember saying, well, what if the document doesn't provide for that? And he's like, doesn't matter. You just charge the consumer the fees, right? And that's sort of the first rule of banking. And I remember thinking, like, really, I thought the first rule of banking was, like, be a trusted depository of people's money. Something you're getting at here is something that I've been thinking about in some different contexts recently. So as I say this, I want to I want to say for the po- I'm not associating you with any of my other thoughts on this. But I just wrote um, yesterday, actually, I, I just published a big piece on Paul Ryan's speakership and the ways in mm-hmm. which his speakership betrayed the very ideas and, and promises that brought him to power. Paul Ryan came up as this anti-deficit guy. You know, he was going to usher the Republicans into a new era of cutting spending and paying even for their tax cuts. And then in every year since he's been speaker, the deficit has gone up. And, you know, and I called this in the piece and I called his explanations around it duplicitousness. Like he could have done he could have done it differently. He had power over what came to the floor. He chose not to enforce a rule like Paygo. And so, you know, the thing that he told the public they could expect from him, which was lower deficits, they got the literal opposite. And I got pushback from people, um, you know, on the right, particularly on this, where they said, you know, hey, he made hard choices and maybe they weren't even the right ones, but you can't call it duplicitous. Like, you know, he, you know, he, he's sincere in what he thinks. And I've been thinking a lot about this difference between um, words being used to ascribe motivations and words being used to describe societal effect. The public here was deceived. When you're talking about what Wells Fargo or these other banks were doing, there was misbehavior against the public. There was misbehavior against debtors, like why they were doing it. There's this very, particularly when we're dealing with the powerful, and, and Kate Mann in her book on misogyny, uh, Down Girl, makes this point very, very eloquently. But when we're talking about powerful people, we have a tendency to be very sympathetic about their motivation. And it's often much more useful and clarifying to talk about the effect on society, the effect on on the people you're supposed to be talking about. But there's this constant, well, yes, everything you're saying about what happened may be true, but to say they misbehaved or they were lying or they hated someone, well, you can't say that. And it's like, well, it doesn't matter what they felt. Like, what matters is what they did. Yeah. No, I think that's a really astute general observation about when things go wrong, how we kind of ascribe motive to it. And, you know, I think ultimately, at some point, even if we start with the benefit of the doubt that, for instance, Speaker Ryan, you know, started, this is really what he wanted to do. At some point, when you haven't done it, and you keep saying you have, I think at that point, you have to take some responsibility for the fact that you're just you're deceiving people. I think it's it's difficult for us as a society to kind of feel that disappointment. Um, somebody told me they were going to do A and they did B, and we'd, we'd rather believe that they're still doing A, and there's a way in which we kind of help them along in that belief, as you said. But I, I think it's ultimately really dangerous. And, you know, part of what I think it does is it discourages and silences those who speak out. And so that 
conversation I relayed to you with this mentor, um, this very senior scholar. I was untenured. This was the most eminent professor at the school where I taught. It was an older white man. I wanted very much to get tenure. And he basically told me, you know, you can't say that. And you're, you can't say what you found in your research. And this was someone, you know, for all purposes, had spent his whole career studying the power dynamic in criminal sentencing and how it affected white and black defendants. And yet here he was kind of in a different way replicating a certain kind of power dynamic. So I do think it's important to to talk about those words and to use them. And there's a great example of this actually in the bankruptcy system where there was a theory at one time that the bankruptcy courts in Delaware, which is a very pro-business state, um, but the bankruptcy courts in Delaware were giving favorable treatment to corporations that were filing for bankruptcy and that we ought to maybe do something about that and change the law and, and force these big corporations to file in the places where, for example, they had employees or they had headquarters or they did business. And the bankruptcy judges, somebody suggested that what was resulting was kind of a corruption of the bankruptcy courts and other people were really hurt by that because they felt like they were doing a good job. The outcome may have been corrupting, but there was nothing kind of, there was no graft, right? And so it wasn't like anyone was being paid off or the judges were, were working for the salary they get and working long hours at that. And, um, and so I think that's a good illustration of kind of what you're talking about and, and what it means to describe things in certain ways. So you did a lot of work in this vein. You did a lot of it with then-Professor Warren. As I understand it, you led a lot of the research that led to the book that was one of her breakout pieces, The Two-Income Trap. Yeah, no, I helped gather the data um, in 2001. That was my first uh, kind of work with her. I was assigned to fly around the country um, to Chicago, to Nashville, and sit in bankruptcy courthouses and pass out surveys to families who were filing bankruptcy. And I think physically seeing that process, looking those people in the eye, um, asking them on one of the hardest days of their lives if they'd be willing to tell us just a little bit more about the pain they were going through, I think that was an incredibly powerful experience for me that really shaped some of the research I came to do later. So one of the things I saw was that for many families, while there was a lot of shame and sadness around filing bankruptcy, there was also a sense of relief. Um, these families had been staving off debt collectors for so long, and they'd been telling their wife that they'd figure out a way to earn just a little bit more, or they'd be telling their kids, like, not this Christmas, but, you know, next Christmas, we'll, we'll be able to have a little bit, a little bit more in the stocking. And there was an aspect of kind of finally admitting that they were flat broke and that they needed help. That was an opportunity for these families to begin again. And I got really interested in kind of how well the bankruptcy system delivered on that promise of giving people a fresh start. So you did this work and a lot of this research, and that ends up bringing you into contact and into a fascinating role with another prominent now Democratic senator, um, but then Attorney General of California, Kamala Harris. Can you talk a bit about that chapter in your career? Yeah, so I was working um, here at the University of California, Irvine, as a law professor. Great university. I, done, thank you. Um, and I'd done that work that we talked about on mortgage companies and, and kind of what they did wrong and how it hurt consumers. and 
the attorney general, then Attorney General Kamala Harris, along with the nation's other attorney generals, had been negotiating with the big banks. And they had built a really powerful case showing a lot of the same kinds of problems that I had identified, um, that the bank would send a, a letter one day saying, your foreclosure's on hold. And the next day, they would send them a document saying, please show up at the courthouse. Your house is about to be sold. That a practice called dual tracking. And so she'd signed this settlement and... She called me out of the blue. Um, I had my daughter, who at the time was about six weeks old, on the floor of my office, because, of course, that's where you keep your baby when you take them to work. Um, you just kind of put them on the floor and hope for the best. And I it was I remember very distinctly, it was like 5.30, and the phone rang. And I remember thinking, like, don't answer it, because you've got to pick up your kids at 6 from daycare, and your daughter's getting cranky, and you, you just came in for a few minutes, and you've been here two hours trying to catch up on your work. But I picked up the phone, and it was Attorney General Harris. And she asked me to be the watchdog for California. And she felt really strongly that, you know, it had been a long fight to get the banks to make these promises. She'd walked away from the negotiating table and drawn the ire of a lot of other attorney generals who wanted a, a political win. She'd walked away and demanded more and worked really hard to get good terms in this settlement. But I remember her telling me, like, the promises on paper are not what matters. What matters is what's going to happen to people. And I want you to be on the ground every day, listening to people, taking phone calls from people, and trying to help people really get the promises that were made by those banks. And so I, I took on that role um, and served in that capacity for two and a half years. Tell me about what that role entailed. I mean, day to day, what does a watchdog in that position do? Yeah, on the first day that I was announced, um, I received about 300 phone calls from families that were losing their homes and wanted to know if they might be helped by this settlement. Um, I've been cleaning out my office at UC Irvine to put some things into storage. I'll be going on leave while I'm serving in Congress. And so just last week, I found the um, those old-fashioned three like spiral telephone message pads where you know it's like you write the little two from the number return the call you know um, calling back and I, I found them all and there were just hundreds of names and numbers from people all around California who had called asking for help during that program so we built a program right here in Irvine but we worked across the state I was incredibly proud that my team spoke six different languages, did lots of outreach with nonprofits, with faith communities, with groups like the NAACP, trying to make sure that it wasn't just those who had fax machines um, and graduate degrees that were able to get help from this program, but that we tried to really push the banks to make it easier for people to get help and to deliver the help in a really fair way so that the most needy families that were capable of keeping their homes actually got the opportunity to do so. Do you think we as a country failed in our response to the housing crisis? I do. I do. I think that for many Americans, it is still incredibly powerful lesson in power in politics that when some of our largest banks were failing and in crisis, that we went to bed after the evening news. And when we woke up in the morning, Chairman Bernanke and, and Tim Geithner and, and the, those people had been awake all night. And in the morning, there was this rescue plan in place. 
was literally 24 hours. They had come up with a plan to stabilize those big banks. And to be clear, I don't think there was necessarily anything wrong with that. It's important to have a stable financial system, um, including at the highest, the largest companies. Those, those big banks do a lot of work for, for small business. Those big banks do a lot of work for consumers. There was nothing wrong with stabilizing those. But people saw that our government was able to be creative and nimble and respond in an emergency situation for large banks. But what when it came time for a family that was in an emergency, that was going to have to move into a car, that was going to have to be in a homeless shelter, that didn't have anywhere to go, literally anywhere to put their possessions when they were foreclosed on, that the government took years and years and years to try to come up with a plan and deliver a plan to actually help people. I know a lot of people who feel that the, I don't want to call it the original sin, but the central sin of our response is that we didn't do something like what was called then cram down. We didn't do something where we made the banks eat more of the cost of these mortgages that had been in the end overpriced. So we were bailing them out and, and we should have done more to allow, to force them to write off some of the debt so people could keep their homes. I remember I was a supporter of cram down and I argued for it in my journalism, but I remember talking to the Obama administration who kind of supported it, but didn't really fight for it and didn't seem to think it would do that much. Do you think that there was a policy package, cram down or something else, that would have done a lot more, that there was a way of bailing this out that, that could have radically changed the shape of the aftermath? My own view is that Sort of the reason it took years and years for families to get help, and by the time help was actually readily available, the worst-off families had already lost their houses, wasn't the amount of help. It was how poorly it was delivered. And so this takes us back a little bit to our complexity and fax machine conversation. So, you know, the programs that were rolled out for consumers like HAMP and, and like HARP and all of, a lot of those programs required long application packages required you to fax things in. The banks didn't receive your fax. Um, they asked you to send it again. 60 days later, all the documents were too old, and so you had to resubmit them. But the bank hadn't made a decision in the 60 days, so you would keep submitting them, and then the banks, the documents would keep being too old, and then you'd have to keep resubmitting them. And after you've done this a couple times, people got discouraged, and they believed there was no real help there. So, you know, there was a lot of actually decent kinds of help available for people. Um, the National Mortgage Settlement, you know, eliminated second mortgages for some deeply underwater homeowners here in California, literally just zeroed out that second mortgage. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good deal to me. Um, it would sure be helpful. But the way in which the relief was delivered meant that for so many people, they, they functionally didn't get to take advantage of those programs. So, Sure, you could make an argument that the programs themselves could have been more generous, and the programs themselves could have been open to more homeowners, and, and those are those are valid arguments. But what I saw was even where we did have a good program, and there was a real group of people who could benefit from it, putting the banks in charge of doing the outreach to consumers, for example, really retarded that process of people getting help. And so, you know, you open a one letter from your bank and it says, here's your foreclosure date. And you open the next letter and it says you can save your home. And people don't know what to do. 
And then they, the kind of a paralysis set in and people began not to trust the information they were getting from the banks, even when it was good news. Even when the bank was saying, please apply for this, it was like, yeah, you also told me to apply for that mortgage that I now can't afford. Um, and so some of my sort of happiest moments of my foreclosure work were seeing the banks some of the banks did really good things. And so one of my favorite examples was at the time, City Mortgage wanted to reach out to consumers and let them know that they were going to be forgiving their second mortgage. And boy, the the I just found this in my office drawer when I was cleaning to these like artifacts of the foreclosure crisis. And Citibank designed this envelope with a wrapper and you opened it up and I mean, confetti fell out practically. I mean, it was way fancier than my wedding invitation. And I remember saying to City, like, this is great. How is it working? And they said, oh, it's fabulous. We're getting like an 85, 90% response rate of people calling us back or sending the paperwork back in. And and I said, well, that's just so fabulous. Like, how did you come up with this? Because it's a lot different at the time than what I was seeing other banks use. And I remember what Citi said. They said, oh, uh, we asked our credit card marketing team to design it. Oh, my God. That's amazing. And meanwhile, I watched some other banks send out letters that were three pages long. And the letter was like a history of their effort to negotiate this national mortgage settlement and was like, we at Bank of America are committed to trying to assist our customers. And this went on for three pages. And like at the bottom of the third page, it said, you may be eligible for help. Call this number if you'd like to apply, right? And and was it any wonder then that, that a lot of the help was was really slow in, in being taken up? There's no set of words I mistrust more from the financial system than you may be eligible. <laughs> like if I see those words, like like I burn the document. Does this speak to a broader thing that Democrats need to learn from their last decade, which is the upper echelons of the Democratic power structure and particularly the Democratic policy structure? It's a lot of lawyers, economists, you know, like like a lot of very clever people. And one way I think you could read a lot of the policy difficulties that Democrats have had and particularly difficulties with making good politics out of policies that to this day they feel are are good policies is that they're too damn complicated, that a bunch of technocrats got over enamored with clever design and compromises and getting everybody to the table and a million other things that altogether, like it's a very logical structure, but the complexity just spirals out of control such that it erodes people's trust and their ability to navigate it. And it creates space for powerful actors who have the resources to navigate that complexity to game the system. Does like the Democratic Party need to rediscover simplicity in its policy design? I think so. And I, I think there's a number of, of good examples of that. You know, having simplicity and allowing consumers to kind of directly engage with government policy. So you think about the development of like the 1040 easy tax form, right, which is one page for a whole lot of taxpayers. That easy form does the trick. They, they don't need the long form with the, you know, the, the longer form. And the sort of kind of proposals like we've seen out of uh, Professor um, Bankman at Stanford that the government gets your W-2 information. And for consumers, taxpayers who are wage earners, they don't have any other income. Um, the government could actually pre-fill out your tax return and send it to you. You would look it over, verify it. Make sure that there was nothing to add. If you had something happen that you needed to change your tax form, you would change it, and then you would 
basically send it back um, or sign off on it electronically. And those kinds of experiences with government being competent and government engaging in a positive way with consumers, I think particularly for progressives, um, we have to show and really highlight where government works and where government works well. And I think one of the things we saw in this campaign season was a lot of people coming forward talking about how the Affordable Care Act worked for their family and what it had allowed them to do and how much that program meant to them. Um, You know, one of the things we see is I think there's often this effort, and I I don't think this is um, innocuous. I think this is actually has a kind of malevolency to it. But we'll often hear um, people say, well, we want to make sure that that only eligible people get help. And we want to make sure that we're auditing and we're cracking down on fraud and that we're, we're making sure that everybody meets the criteria and it's really fair. And I think that, that sounds good when you, when you talk about it. I mean, who's against fairness? But what happens when you make programs so complex and you're so busy screening people out, what actually happens is you screen out the most desperate but eligible people. And it turns out that cheaters are willing to fill out a whole lot of paperwork to cheat. And so there's great research on this by Elder Shafir and done some work looking at like what happens when we try to crack down, for instance, on welfare benefits and perceptions of fraud and welfare benefits. The longer you make the form and the more hurdles you put in place ostensibly to catch cheaters, what actually happens is the rate of cheating stays exactly the same and often even goes up a little. And the most vulnerable, the lowest income, those who most need the benefit, don't apply at all because it's so complex that they can't navigate the system. And I saw that repeat in a different way um, with the mortgage crisis. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. I'd like to talk a bit about how you decided to run for Congress. So you were at UCI Law School, which was a new law school having a a really fast ascent. It seems to me to have been a really successful construction of an institution. Irvine's a lovely place. Running for Congress is hard. Um, It requires raising a lot of money. It requires going against money and interest. Mimi Walters had won her last campaign. Uh, At that point, Hillary Clinton had won that district. But Mimi Walters, I think, won that campaign in 2016 by something like 17 points. And you have three young kids. You're a single parent. Like, that's a lot to look at and say, I'm going to run for Congress. I'd love to, to hear about what made you decide to make that jump. 
Yeah. I mean, it's funny, you know, you said it, that's a lot and it, it, it is a lot, I'll be honest with you, but I, I've never been the kind of person um, who liked to be told that something was impossible. Um, I think that's something I have in common with both Senators Warren and Harris is these are people that when they hear something's impossible, they they just start to ask, like, what about clearing off that roadblock? How about making that go away? Um, how about clearing my path this way? Um, and so for me, the, the kind of impetus to run came from a couple things. I mean, first and foremost, on a very personal level, I had really wanted, having seen everything I'd seen with the foreclosure crisis, and I really wanted to make sure our government was moving housing policy in the right direction and thinking about how to make home buying more affordable. It's a real crisis um, here in this part of California and in many areas of the country. And so I had done some housing policy work, um, you know, just in my free time for the Clinton campaign, and I had been asked to join the transition team to help work on housing policy and and try to make sure we got people in there with good ideas and good values who were going to really fight for homeowners and fight for consumers. And so I had literally gone to Fashion Island, one of our local malls, and um, met with a personal shopper. And for those who know me, like, this is not the kind of thing I do. Um, I became an academic in part because you could wear jeans every day. And I'd purchased winter clothes. Um, and I'd packed this whole suitcase with boots and scarves and, you know, kind of wool sweaters and these clothes I was going to need for the six-week transition period in D.C. And I remember that night gathering at my community center here in Irvine with my neighbors to watch the election. I had taken a full-size Hillary Clinton sheet cake um, to the election watch party. And as the evening went on, the, frankly, the women kept drinking more wine and the men went home to kind of sleep it off. And the kids just ate that entire cake unsupervised. Um, and I remember going <laughs> home and, and taking all of those winter clothes out of my suitcase, putting them back in shopping bags and returning them um, to, to the store. And I remember my good friend saying to me, you know, I know this is hard, Katie, but why are you waiting for anyone to make it possible for you to make a difference? Like, I, I understand you're upset about the election of Donald Trump, but, you know, you don't need Hillary Clinton to be president to make a difference. There are things you can get out there and do to make a difference. Why don't you run for office yourself? And I had never thought about it, um, but this kind of this this pointing out to me that I didn't have to rely on somebody else doing something, that I myself had agency to be engaged in the political process. And I think that's, by the way, in miniature, kind of the story of so many volunteers on our campaign who realized that, hey, I actually can make phone calls. And if I make phone calls, we might elect a Democrat in, in this area. Um, hey, you know, I, I didn't think about it before, but I, I can knock on doors. I like to talk to people. Um, let me go do that. And so um, it was It was really that kind of awareness and, you know, of course, also a realization that as all these people in my community center, they're, you know, they're upset about Donald Trump. Nobody that night said, I can't believe we just elected Mimi Walters to be our representative, somebody whose voting record going back years in the House, in the State Senate, in the Assembly, is 
antithetical to our Orange County values and has a voting record that looks an awful lot like what you're worried Donald Trump might do. And so there was this real gap between people's kind of concern about Trump and not recognizing that many of those same people, I mean, we know factually, many of the same people who did not vote for Trump in the presidential in 2016 in this area voted for Mimi Walters, not realizing that, in fact, on so many issues, her values are 100 percent aligned with him. And in fact, she went on to vote 99 percent of the time with Donald Trump, which was pretty much on brand with what she'd done in her prior political career. And did you ever wonder if you were a good fit for the district? I mean, something that I remember when I was talking to people about that district, because I grew up there and, you know, Orange County, I mean, you know this better than me, but Orange County, it's a cradle of Californian conservatism. And it had been changing. and Was, and that, was, was Ezra, Yes, was. Well, now it's all blue. But I think that there was a conventional wisdom that if it was going to turn, it would be with these more new Democrat style, you know, like very kind of soft, you know, not drawing very sharp distinctions. But you kind of ran, you ran on Medicare for all. I mean, I don't want to say you ran an extremely liberal campaign there. You know, you ran against sort of the salt tax increase and and, and, and there's a lot going on there. But I think that you, your win showed that there was more ideological flex in Orange County than people had necessarily thought. And I'm curious if that's something you saw or, or just how you think about what, what Orange County's politics are right now? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we definitely heard from people in the primary, which was, you know, a hotly contested primary with great candidates running um, and, you know, kind of from some of the powers that be that, you know, you've got a tough district, you, you know, maybe you should moderate on this or that or the other thing. And, and kind of what I kept coming back to is, I live here. I'm raising my kids here. I work at the largest employer in the district. And I I know what people need. And I'm listening to them. And, you know, when you take an issue like Medicare for All, um, let's be honest, Medicare for All isn't an idea that came down from the Democratic establishment, however one wants to define that. Medicare for All is an idea that in a lot of ways is coming from people who have veterans care and like it or who are 24 and realize that their grandparents, who are much sicker than them, have much better health care with Medicare than than they have. Um, it's so Some of these ideas are really about kind of recognizing that these are things that people want. And and I think also being willing to listen to people's concerns. Um, I've had people come up to me and say, you know, I, I'm worried about this position or that position. I I want to know more what would happen if we, if we moved this way or that way. You know, and I, I think it's an ability to listen. This is a really well-educated district and giving people information and letting them give you information and engaging in that dialogue, I think shows a respect for voters that that even if they're not 100% sure they're with you on every single policy, what you've showed them is that you're really thinking and you're really trying to learn. And I think that plays really well in a district that values education and values civil discourse in the way that that this part of Orange County does. How much do you think the voters who came out for you had just been neglected over the years? I mean, something I think about when I think about those Orange County districts, and and frankly, a lot of the districts that flipped in this election, is 
I knew a lot of people in in that district who didn't know Mimi Walters' name. They didn't know the name of the person representing them in Congress. And in part, I think that's because the Democratic Party there had been so historically weak that it hadn't really fielded candidates against her, not not serious ones, and it had not funded them. And the National Democrats didn't do that either. So you had a district that had flipped in the presidential election, but Walters had won by 17 points. And that reflected, you know, the fact that there was a very strong, on some level at least, presidential candidate for Democrats running there, but not congressional. Is part of the lesson Democrats need to take here that they just actually need to be contesting more districts and they even in a normal year think they can win? Because like otherwise, how, how do they even know what the nature of that district really is? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely true that, you know, we had one of the hardest races um, in terms of the amount that Mimi Walters had won by. It was seven, more than 17 points, as you as you noted. But it's true, like, there hadn't been a real race um, in terms of the amount of funding and the resources that someone had been able to bring to the campaign. And I do think every race is worth contesting. Um, I think the more that we have strong candidates on both sides, the healthier that is for our democratic process, little d democratic, I mean, just sort of engagement. And, you know, one of the things that I, I just came to love um, in campaigning, um, I guess two things really stick out to me as kind of repeated favorite moments. Um, I would get people who would come up to me and say, you know, um, I'm a Democrat, but I'm the only one in my in my town. I mean, this is just not statistically plausible, but they truly believed, you know, in a community of 20,000 people that they were the only Democrat. Or they would say, you know, I'm the only Democrat in my neighborhood, but I'll, I'll walk my neighborhood. I'll, I'll give it a try. You know, but I only I only want to talk to Democrats at first because I, I I'm nervous and and so they they'd come back and we'd give them kind of their walk packet, their list of people to go talk to, and there'd be you know three four hundred names on the list, and they would say no 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 like I only want to talk to Democrats, and we'd be like right, that's where we're sending you. And they would say, oh, my God, Bob across the street, like, I had no idea he was a Democrat. Who knew, right? Um, that, that person's in my kid's soccer team, and I didn't know they were Democrats. And so there just isn't a lot of political conversation here. And so um, I think there was definitely that. And then the other thing that happened a lot is I would get people who would come up to me, and they would often whisper, um, Katie, it's, it's so nice to meet you. I'm a Republican. And, and I would always say back, I don't care. That's okay. I just want you to to vote the right way that you think is going to help our country and help Orange County. And so creating a much more accepting environment for political engagement here was one of the things that all of these campaigns in Orange County did that didn't just help us at the congressional level win. I think it helped us win some down-ballot races and become more competitive in down-ballot races. Um, you know, the campus that we're sitting on at, at UC Irvine, I mean, it— Historically, turnout in the midterms was 5%. And, you know, I think we got it up to 30-something this time. That's not where it should be. This campus has a lot more room to grow. Boy, that's a big uptick in one year. I think that's actually a good place to, to begin to bring the conversation to an end. So let me ask you the question we always used to close out, which is, what are three books you've read over the years that have influenced you, that have changed the way you think that you would recommend to others? Yeah. So one of my favorite books that I read in the last couple of years is Evicted um, by Matthew Desmond. It's a, a really powerful, um, it's nonfiction. It's a story about the ways in which people losing their homes, in this case, rental apartments, um, 
the, the destruction that that creates, the pain that those families feel, but the way that that loss of a home then creates so many ancillary problems. Um, and so it's a great story for someone like me who focused more on the homeownership side to see what goes on on the rental side. And of course, one of the parts of the, the book that really stayed with me is, you know, the most discriminated group of people in housing um, seems to be, and of course there are conflicting studies and lots of housing discrimination in the marketplace, but when for rental housing, one of the groups that's most sharply discriminated against is single mothers with young children. Because for the same reason that some people don't want to sit next to kids on the airplane, um, they don't necessarily want to be their downstairs neighbor. Um, and so I, I really love that book, Evicted. Another book that I've read recently that I thought was really powerful was given to me by somebody I met on the campaign trail. It's a book by Jessica Stern, and it's called Denial. And it's her story of her sexual assault, her her rape um, at age 15 in her home in a safe suburban town. And the 10 and 20 and 30 year period of her kind of denying with her family that this had happened and her kind of search ultimately for the rapist and how she kind of came to terms with that and the, the problem of denial of painful realities in our society. And then the third book I'll give is just my it's just my favorite fiction book, and it's, it always surprises people, I think, when I say it, but it's Lonesome Dove, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Larry McMurdy. And the reason I like it so much is it's a story of friendship, of this incredibly powerful, lifelong friendship between these two main characters as they go through a life of adventure together. And so those are the three books that I would just kind of offer up to people as they do their holiday shopping. Congresswoman-elect Katie Porter, congratulations on the win, and thank you so much for taking this time with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you to the Congresswoman-elect for being here. Thank you to you for being here. If you got this far, I, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Take a moment, if you don't mind, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're I guess you can't rate things on Spotify. Stitcher. If you're listening on Stitcher, give us a rating. It does do a lot of good for the podcast. Thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner, to Topher Ruth at UC Berkeley. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back shortly. Shortly.